0: The trees are suddenly naked here in Connecticut. Fall moved in quickly. I looked out the window one day and the yard was a blanket of fallen leaves. So now I have to be careful to close my drapes because the neighbors across the street can see into my windows. Otherwise the trees aren't gonna be the only thing suddenly naked, you know. A lot has happened here in the nutmeg state recently. I'm not going to talk about all of it, because not all of it is for me to talk about. My husband has had a lot going on, and although he did say the other night, well, this could all be a book for you to write, I said, no, it's not my story, Rob. He said, but you're the writer, and it affects you. Someday, if he does want my help telling a story, I will. I believe everyone has the power to tell their story. So I always ask my kids' permission before sharing anything here or elsewhere. I actually just wrote an article about my daughter's horrendous experience at school. But because it was her story, I insisted we co-author it and have her name listed alongside mine. I actually haven't submitted it yet. I'm sitting on it like a doofus. But when I do, it'll have both our names on it. When I started this program, it's been six months now, I talked about how I was inspired by the psychologist in Seattle who identified Frankie and me as autistic. It was such an incredible gift. It was something I wanted to give back to others because it changed my life so much. I thought, well, I'll become a psychologist and go around diagnosing autistic people because too many providers don't know what they're doing. I mean, I'm serious, they don't. There's so much ableism in the fields, and it's still something a lot of providers are reluctant to diagnose. Or they don't know how to read the data from the ADOS accurately, or whatever. There's just a lot of outdated information out there still circulating. A lot of pandering to the panicked masses, wanting to avoid catching the tism. And a lot of plain old ignorance. So I wanted to change that. I thought, okay, here we go. I'm going to do the same thing, get my MS, go on to get a PhD, then hand out club cards for the A-team like there's no tomorrow. I'm going to change lives, promote overall well-being by preventing the next generation from decades of mental health problems. Get involved in research, boss scientists around, and tell them they don't know what the hell they're doing. But, well, you know how you see people sharing those memes of the really fancy-looking Pinterest cakes next to the cake the person actually made, trying to emulate it, and it's, like, all crappy-looking. Yeah, you get the picture. I'm fascinated by psychology. Always have been. I spent time in my early 20s nursing myself back to health after a nasty mental breakdown by helping others who were going through a difficult time. When I lived in New York City, I spent hours every day acting as an online crisis chat room volunteer. People who were dealing with suicidal ideation and self-harm. I'd talk to them, supporting, listening. And that's when I first thought, hey, I think maybe I could do this for a living. And then one day, I had someone actually make an attempt on their life. They survived, and they were talking to me while they dealt with it. Even though I managed to get them through that long night of terror and pain while they wrestled with their demons, I realized I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a psychologist. That, and I was always terrible at math. Thanks to my undiagnosed dyscalculia, So I assumed there was no way I could pass the required classes to be a psychologist as well. I gave up on the idea, went on about my life for 20 years. When I started an MS earlier this year, I knew it was going to be a long road. I also knew life was not on my side in this endeavor. I've got a lot going on. Despite all the setbacks I kept facing with stuff going on at home, I enjoyed the research so much. I mean, I researched to relax because I'm weird. You're listening to someone who read the dictionary and encyclopedia as a kid. When I was in therapy in Seattle, I told that to my psychologist and he said, Oh, that's very autistic. Okay. Good to know that now, decades later, the research project I decided to focus on with this degree is body language. I've always been fascinated by human communication, what we perceive and think we perceive. I'm also always fascinated by my children. Having a child who is minimally or unreliably speaking, I have become even more attuned to reading her physical cues. Not as most people do to look for warning signs. I appreciate her genuine autistic communication expressed through her entire being. I find it so beautiful. I wanted to begin a long-term research project of showing how autistic communication is valid in any form because of the nature of my program. I had to avoid any specific diagnoses. So I thought, well, for now, I'll just compile research on body language and design a general study about how we respond to it, receive it. I was enjoying it and to give myself credit, I'm good at it, but honestly, the psychology field is a mess. The more I read these studies, the more irritated I got. The participants are screened to ensure there's no history of psychiatric or neurological issues. (laughs) Some are still even screened for (laughs) right-handedness. What in the world? In this day and age, the ableism is so appalling. I just started to feel sick to my stomach every time I'd even open up my computer. I started thinking about a conversation I had back in 2010 or 2011. I was playing for a friend of mine who was a concert pianist. I've known him since I was a teenager from a piano competition. I was actually up here in Connecticut visiting him, in fact. I played some music for him because at that point I thought I was headed to grad school as a pianist. He was nice enough to give me some free feedback and advice, which we discussed while we were eating pancakes at a diner. He asked me if I still learned and played concerti. I said, why though? There's enough people out there doing that. I don't need to add to it. He was startled by my honesty, but after a pause, he nodded because I had a point. If it's not my thing, there are plenty of people who can play concerti and play them well. It wasn't worth my time to focus my energy where it wasn't needed which is where I find myself again. Although I honestly don't think there are enough good therapists or psychologists out there. One of the reasons I thought I should go whole hog into this is because I kept seeing autistic people online complaining about how there aren't enough autistic therapists to talk to and who can understand them. But I just don't feel like I can keep focusing my energy where it's not going to be welcomed any field that ableist is going to be an uphill battle for a vocal autistic activist. And I just got enough battles to fight, you know? I wanted to make an impact and I thought this was the way to do it because of how someone else impacted me. But here's where it gets interesting. Sorry you've been listening to this boring drivel for however long it's been because now you're getting to do good stuff. Right before I pulled my children out of school for the second time this last week, my son, Frankie, did something I could never have done at seven years old. He used his voice to assert his needs and protest to the adults at his school, shocking the hell out of them. We'd been discussing the possibility of leaving, and I'd already sent my letter to the superintendent that morning about Charlie, my youngest, due to the issues we were experiencing. I made it clear to the twins that it was their choice if and when they wanted to return to homeschooling. I wasn't there, but my husband dropped him off the Monday before Halloween. And Frankie raised his hand to the para who helped him transition to class. She was confused and asked why he was raising his hand. So he said clearly, I'm probably not going to be here past tomorrow because I'm not getting what I need here. When Rob told me about that, I couldn't stop laughing for an hour. Not at Frankie. My God, I'm so proud of that kid for speaking his truth. But at the discomfort those people must have felt being given notice by a seven-year-old. I mean, I don't know what all he said or to whom, but he told me, he told a few people and he was told that they were doing their best which they weren't by the way, two months into the year and no IEP meeting, that's not your best. That's retaliation against a mom who called out racism and ableism. Shame on you. But back to my point, that's some freaking impact right there. I don't need an advanced psychology degree to to do that. I am raising three autistic children with powerful voices and some heckin' self-awareness. So I think I'm just going to keep doing the most terrifying thing of all and keep talking. I spoke about the memoir I started three years ago, almost four years ago now. It's been stalled out for two years for a lot of reasons. I wasn't diagnosed when I started it. So writing it was an interesting rediscovery of my childhood and of myself. Writing it was chaotic because I changed so much during that year of COVID lockdowns, therapy. My marriage was in turmoil, moving 3,000 miles, my mother's last year of life, and my youngest child still being a toddler. So much was going on. So much still is going on, but that year that I was writing the most was tremendous. I changed the trajectory of the story every time another layer of my mask came off and I understood my true self a little more. It drove my developmental editor absolutely bonkers. She just didn't understand it at all. To her, it should be linear, a straight shot, chronological, simple, write it all down as it happened. And there you go. You got yourself a stew for me. Memories were resurfacing at random times, and I pieced them together as I was able, in between the chaos unfolding around me. I couldn't think around the jigsaw of my life. Yet some days, writing down these little clues in these tortured, jagged fragments was all that kept me clinging to life. It sounds dramatic, I know, but... It just... I was going through a lot. trudging through all the little shards and remnants of my life, written down as I could find time and energy, it was painful. It was bizarre and surreal and confusing. I realized I'd worn a mask for 42 years of my life, and I didn't have a clue who I was without it. After my mother died in 2022, it was all too much. I really couldn't even pretend to write anymore. I gave it up, not officially, but I just did. I laid it down. And while I sat here grieving in Connecticut, Seattle, let me go. It was a brutally difficult time for me. One of the reasons I got lost with the book is I couldn't figure out where it ended. I mean, I had something like 86,000 words written, but it was nowhere close to done. I just didn't know what to do with it or what direction to take. I've revisited it now and then, but always came away feeling like as lost and confused as before. Until this past weekend. (laughs) I had this incredible thing happen on Saturday a little scene played out in my living room and it hit me like a ton of bricks. That's it, that's the end of my book. It wasn't like anything I've experienced in my life, something so certain and perfect and poetic. I already had a meeting set up for the following day with someone I've been talking to this year to get back into writing. In May, before I thought we were moving to California, I started a, a writing group here in Connecticut. Following Nancy Ernie's advice of just diving in and asking people to meet up, I put out an ad for a memoir writing group. Two people answered, and one person showed up. We spent so long sitting there talking, it was ridiculous. I mean, we just clicked so well and got on famously. I will always remember with gratitude how wonderful it was to sit and talk about our writing and our experiences. And then how I laughed at myself when I asked her, do you have any writing experience? (laughs) This incredibly brilliant, glamorous woman sitting in front of me is a well-traveled professional writer and formal former television journalist, while I'm sitting there in my ratty sweatshirt, swigging coffee with spittle flying everywhere as I talk. say you ever read any? Good Lord. (laughs) Yeah, newsflash. She's written a lot. And God bless her. She's the most amazing person, has become a wonderful friend. I truly feel a soul kinship with her. We've kept in touch and meet up as we can. And have the most lengthy conversations about everything under the sun. We got together this past Sunday actioning for coffee and we talked nonstop for three and a half hours. It wasn't until the end that I told her about this little scene the previous day and how I felt like I knew it had to be the end of my book. Her jaw dropped and she said, Yes, it's perfect. But more than that, she said something I wasn't expecting. She said, your entire body language changes when you talk about your book. Your eyes sparkle, you lean forward, you're animated and engaged. Nothing else we've talked about does this to you. (laughs) Given how many things that we talked about, that was really saying something. I've spent the past few months thinking about and researching body language and how it affects autistic people. Except I was completely oblivious to how it had been affecting the one autistic person. I haven't been listening to me. She didn't just validate my book or my writing or even my being a writer. She validated my authentic communication and my most genuine way of being autistic. It's one of the most generous and life-changing gifts anyone has ever given me. I realized I'd been going about this all wrong. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to fix everything by fixing everyone. But I'd be ignoring everything I know about psychology if I didn't acknowledge I'm the one who needs work in that scenario. I withdrew from the psychology program this week. I listened to my body. I gave myself permission to be what I want to be. I've always wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. I used to hide under the piano reading Dickens instead of practicing when I was a kid for Pete's sake. When I was 14, I played Chopin's second piano scherzo at a camp recital. I was so nervous about it, I nearly threw up. But Ray Hansen, my teacher at the time, spoke with me beforehand and told me to just go out on stage and be myself. So I tried to take his advice, and it actually went really well. It was electrifying, just one of those rare moments when I was connected to the audience and right on top of the notes. I had some of the biggest applause of my life. Afterward, Mr. Hansen met me backstage and I was a typical giggly teenager. I said, breathless from adrenaline, for the first time in my life, I played something just because I loved it, not because I wanted to be a hero. He said, and darling, you became a hero by doing it. I'm smiling. You just can't see it.